Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This edition will be a little longer than usual. Forgive me. It's about a big question. How do you report the news? How do you tell the story? If you had any idea how much time is spent discussing, complicating, what is basically a simple craft, you would be amazed. In newsrooms, at dinner parties, where journalists swap all the rumors they've heard during the week but didn't report because they couldn't transubstantiate the rumors into facts, at learned seminars, in elite journalism schools, that's what journalists talk about. How do you tell the story? And when has happened in 2016, the bulk of institutional journalism misses the biggest story that Donald Trump needed to be taken seriously because American society had changed so much that he could make a legitimate and ultimately successful run at the presidency. The question is asked with greater urgency, although I'm not sure that the answer has been found yet. Partially, it's there for all to see. Data journalism was a trend of the last decade. The idea that you could explain much of what was happening in the world with data took hold of newsrooms. The New York Times set up a unit in its Washington bureau called The Upshot. It was run by rising star David Leonhardt to report and contextualize the world via data. The Upshot received significant resources from the Times, even as the paper was struggling financially, which gives a sense of data journalism's institutional importance. If other outlets didn't create whole Data J units, what was clear was that charts and data, often sourced to think tanks, were replacing reporters and photographers on the street as the foundation of news. Understandable, in a way. It's expensive to go into the field to report a story, cheaper for a reporter to sit at a desk and look at a data set online and then call up the people who did the research and those who disagree with the research to get quotes. You can have your story filed well before deadline, quite possibly have an actual lunch break, maybe even go for a run during the course of the workday. But, generational thing, I came up in journalism with the idea that skepticism was one of our primary tools. I'm skeptical about data. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Some say Mark Twain coined that one. Others say he was quoting Benjamin Disraeli. But younger hacks seem to have forgotten that epigram altogether. They have an almost religious belief in data. I sometimes wonder why they didn't go to work for McKinsey or Grant Thornton or another of the big consulting firms, the places where data is never wrong, or at least that's what they convince their clients. The salaries of the consulting firms are considerably higher as well. Anyway, right up to election night, the journals who rely on data, especially data that agreed with their biases, had Hillary Clinton winning, and then she didn't. This is not to say that data doesn't have a place in journalism. I use data all the time, when space is tight, comparative data can give historical context in a few words. But numbers provide a particular kind of fact. There are other kinds of facts, and facts are only the building blocks of journalism. Facts are, to the truth, what a pile of bricks is to a finished dwelling. They need to be arranged in a particular order and mortared together before you have the truth, or simply an accurate picture of what happened at an event. Brick-baking is an industrial process, but arranging the bricks leveling them, mortaring them, is a human one. There's a German word to describe that human process in journalism. 
Einführung. I came across it while researching my book, Emancipation. It was a word coined by philosopher, historian, and clergyman Johann Gottfried von Herder in the 18th century. Google Translate says Einführung means empathy, which is accurate up to a point, but doesn't quite get at Herder's intention. You can hear that in the pronunciation of the word. Einfühling means in-feeling, feeling your way into a story, using that place in your mind where rational imagination operates and then observing behaviors that to you make no sense because no one of your acquaintance would act that way or because the consequence of the behavior is so obviously harmful to the person engaged in it, you can report on the behavior and its consequences more impartially. By using Einführung, you understand actions and can describe them non-judgmentally. With intellectual honesty, you can extend your inquiry into an event and ask the right questions. Herder, who is regarded in Germany and other places as the father of modern historical scholarship, came up with this very humane idea because he felt it imperative that if people in his time the Enlightenment, were to thoroughly understand people in the past and people from other cultures, they needed to use this rational, imaginative, non-judgmental method. I only discovered Herder and his theory after my daily journalism days were over, but I recognized in it my work method. Einführung. The Northern Ireland story dropped on my plate when I became the NPR London correspondent in the early 1990s. The political process that would lead to the Good Friday Agreement was not public, not page one news yet. For Americans, though, an occasional story from Northern Ireland was welcome. There were enough people of Irish Catholic ancestry with vestigial interest in the fight against British colonial rule to justify a reporting trip. The reasons for the growth of the IRA and the troubles had been covered often enough, but what I was interested in was the Protestant or Unionist side of the story. The Christian wars of religion in Europe had ended hundreds of years ago. Discriminatory laws against Catholics in the UK had ended in the 19th century. Yet here were a group of people perfectly willing to follow leaders, one of whom, Ian Paisley, had to be bodily removed from the European Parliament for shouting out at Pope John Paul II, The Pope is the Antichrist. That was in 1988, not 1588. Ulster's Protestants were so unwilling to compromise that they allowed their little province to become a militarized zone with almost 20,000 British soldiers on patrol and combat gear. They also tolerated paramilitary groups that went well beyond self-defense and into savagery. The Shankill Butchers murdered 23 people for being Catholics in a seven-year period, and they were not killed swiftly. How to understand this? Every year on the 12th of July, Northern Ireland shuts down. The Unionist community goes marching to celebrate the victory in 1690 of Protestant King William of Orange over the deposed Catholic King James II at the Battle of the Boyne, not far from Dublin. It's there July 4th. On the 12th, everyone turns out. Men from Orange Lodges march to fife and drum for miles through cities and towns to assembly points where they listen to speeches about their culture and drink. In Belfast, the assembly point is called The Field. In 1993, this event was past being an anachronism, and it was as deeply offensive as you can imagine to Northern Ireland's Catholic community, but it was a big deal 
and a good way to get inside the Protestant mindset was to fly over from London and do a story on it. I contacted the Shankill Road Orange Lodge and asked would they mind if I marched with them. No problem. When I explained I meant that literally, they laughed and said, yes, yeah, sure. And so I did. The Shankill Road is the heartland of working-class loyalism, the ultra-form of unionism. It supplied many of the foot soldiers of Protestant paramilitary groups. In 1993, it was separated from the Falls Road, the heartland of working-class Catholics who provided many foot soldiers for the IRA, by a high wall erected at the start of the Troubles. I arrived early at the Orange Lodge, joined some of the fellows in a stirrup cup of Irish whiskey before taking my place in line. I turned on my tape recorder, and off we went. As you can imagine, I got great sound, had more than I could possibly use inside of five minutes. I could have dropped out of the formation, but I wanted to know these people. I wanted somehow to feel what they felt. The lodge marched down the shankle to the center of Belfast, where it fell in with lodges from all over the city and began the long processional to the field. There were thousands of marchers, and the sidewalks were filled with their families cheering them on. It must have looked odd as the shankle lodge went past. Lines of burly men with orange sashes slung diagonally across their torsos, and me, bespectacled, wearing a raincoat that wasn't necessary because, as any fool knows, it is always hot and sunny on the 12th of July in Northern Ireland. Two-thirds of the way to the field, we stopped for a breather and refreshments. A couple of fellows ran into a shop and returned with beer. Lots of beer. They offered me one, and we began to chat. Where are you from? I said, New York, originally. Paddy Town, they laughed. They asked my name. Michael Goldfarb. You're Catholic. Michael's a Catholic name. You're Catholic. You're a Mick. Well, my last name is Goldfarb. But they only heard the vowel sounds in my surname. Mickey O'Hara. Hey, it's Mickey O'Hara, one snorted. It wasn't threatening, but it was racist. But as the odd man out in the parade, I felt like I should take it. We got to the field, sore-footed and sweaty. The men of the Shankle Lodge skipped the speeches and immediately raced to a huge banqueting facility not far away where lunch had been arranged. I was invited to join them. The drinking was much more intense, and the jokiness began to evaporate. Eventually, the lodge leader, with whom I was sitting, suggested the time had come for me to leave. Some of the lads wanted me gone, and they were past the point of sobriety. He couldn't guarantee my safety. Anyway, I had a great feature, and it aired that night, and I also had a feeling for who these people were. Three months later, the IRA attempted to bomb a meeting of a Protestant paramilitary group, the Ulster Defense Association. The meeting was being held on the Shankle Road above a fish and chip shop. It was a Saturday afternoon at lunchtime, and the chippy was packed with families just finished their weekly shopping. The bomb went off prematurely. The bomber was killed, along with one UDA member and eight others, including two children. I flew back to Belfast, along with every reporter in the UK. The chip shop was just down the shankle from the Orange Lodge. I was recognized and remembered, and doors opened for me that didn't open for other journalists. I had felt my way into that community. I was taken deeper into it. 
Over the following five years, as the Good Friday political process unfolded, and it was a political process, not a peace process, a process that at crunch time involved making sure that the Shankles' sons serving prison time for paramilitary violence would be released, the slate wiped clean, I was always able to walk on that road, alone, and hear the latest news and gossip, get a feel for what would and wouldn't fly in the talks, no matter what government spokesmen were saying, and tell my listeners in America, who were so interested in the story, stuff that perhaps other colleagues couldn't quite get to. Feeling my way in, Einfühlung, didn't mean falling in love with the loyalist community. I met men who had murdered, and their wives and parents who supported them. I understood where they were coming from, but to understand doesn't mean to condone. The night before the 12th of July is bonfire night, fireworks burning the Pope in effigy. The last of these events I attended, on Sandy Row in Belfast, just behind the Europa Hotel, some brave guy, drunk and angry because the process was moving forward and his side were making big concessions, got in my face and grabbed my microphone, and I had to grab it back and get back in his face, which was actually rather stupid, as he could have taken me one-on-one, -on -one, and he's with half a dozen pals, so the odds were definitely not good. Once again, an older person intervened, and I moved off. Five years later, the night before the Iraq War started, in Erbil, Kurdistan, northern Iraq, I met the man who would become my guide into his society. I hired Ahmed to be my translator. He only agreed to do the job, provided I accept that I had to understand the culture and history and the people of Iraq. I had to feel my way in, although that's not exactly what he said. Einfühlung. 250 years ago, Pastor Herder had other interesting ideas that anticipated how journalists report and explain the world to their audience. He abhorred generalizations about groups of people. Data journalism is the natural outgrowth of a society long defined by the terms of market research. As you listen to this, somewhere a focus group is in session or a marketing team is exchanging emails about what to ask a focus group, and the group will have been selected because they represent types. Millennials or baby boomers, they will have been sorted by income and education, and the basis for their categorization will be data. No arguing with that. The numbers don't lie. Until they do, and product launches fail, and sure-bet candidates lose elections. Herder wrote in another philosophy of history for the education of mankind, No one in the world feels the weakness of generalization more than I. One paints an entire people, age, part of the earth. Whom has one painted? In the end, one summarizes them in nothing, as a general word. A general word, or phrase like white working class. Herder found these designations meaningless for understanding history. One needed to explore the particularities of each culture, not stand back and use a single label to characterize anything as complex as a human society or a nation or an epoch in history. Even now, many journalists are still trying to understand what led to Donald Trump's election by crunching numbers or by looking at American society through the generalizations of marketing, political consulting branch, they won't find an answer that way. Last June, I got into a little Twitter argument with a younger colleague of color. He was quoting some numbers that proved Trump had no chance of winning. 
there weren't enough working-class white people to put him over the top. I had just come back from Ohio, talking to independent voters, most of them white, many of them young, quite a few of them women. I had listened to what they said, not just about politics, but about more mundane things in their lives, and looked at the ravaged physical landscape they inhabited, and came away thinking Trump was going to win the state. And since no one had won the presidency in half a century without carrying Ohio, I thought Hillary Clinton was in trouble. I tried to point this out in 140 characters to my young colleague, but he was pretty dismissive. Numbers don't lie, and he had his preferred set of numbers. And numbers alone cannot make up a first draft of history. Now, Herder never really detailed a work method for Einführung. He was aware that it could lead people to reach conclusions that fit their own biases. And that happened. He wrote admiringly of the Jews in the German world of the 18th century. Back then, Jews were confined to ghettos and considered aliens, but Herder advocated that they be granted citizenship. The next generation of German thinkers, most of whom claimed the pastor as their intellectual father, were virulent anti-Semites. They were romantic nationalists, and using their own process of Einführung, they refused to acknowledge that a Jew born in the German world had any of the fine qualities of the German nation and were in no way entitled to the same rights as a German. Well, perhaps this method should be used for simpler tasks, like reporting the news, rather than grander tasks, like theorizing about the German nation. What it all comes down to is this the pastor advocated a more empathic understanding of what it means to be human. I'm with him. It's easy to wait for the latest data set to arrive from wonderful think tanks like the Pew Foundation in the U.S. or Resolution Foundation in the U.K. They provide clues about where to focus journalistic inquiry, but they are numbers only, building blocks at best. As a journalist writing the first rough draft of history, you have to sit with the people themselves, find out about their work, or lack of it, absorb their anger, drink with them, accept their humanity even when they hate you, if you want to begin to understand how to report on events that affect not only them, but the wider world as well. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Thanks for listening. By the way, much of what I learned about Johann Gottfried von Herder I picked up from Isaiah Berlin's book, Three Critics of the Enlightenment. If you're interested in learning more about Herder or just enjoy thinking about the big theories of history, I recommend it. I also recommend that you visit my website, www.goldfarbpod.com, where you can hear lots more. And you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming.